All right, we're in the book of Ezra. We're in chapter two. And uh, even though it's 70 verses, yes, we are going to do the whole chapter. So just hang in there. Your burrito can wait. Ezra 2, verses 1 through 70. The topic, 42,360 exiles march 900 miles over a period of four months to return to Jerusalem. The title of our message, When Jews Come Marching Home Again. Hurrah, hurrah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, beautiful section of scripture where you name so many of the people that were precious to you at this time. Reminding us, Lord, how precious we are in your sight. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for loving us and for dying for us, rising from the dead. Thank you for your gift of salvation that most of us have received. We also ask, Lord, if there are people here this morning that don't know you, they've they've not invited your son to uh, be their savior and the Holy Spirit is not indwelling them, Lord, that today would be their day of salvation and that they would be drawn to you by the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, open up this word to us, Lord. Make it uh, uh, understandable and applicable. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And again, those who agreed said, amen. Building contractors have notoriously bad reputations. I think it's a case of a few bad apples spoiling the whole bunch. Nevertheless, too many of us have horror stories to tell. You probably should watch The Money Pit before hiring a contractor. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's rated PG, so I think I'm on okay ground. It stars Tom Hanks and Shelley Long as a couple who buy a house badly needing remodeling. It's a million-dollar distress sale mansion on the market for a mere $200,000. From the moment they take possession of the house, it begins to hilariously fall apart. At one point, there's no hot water for bathing, so Tom, uh, Tom Hanks is forced to boil water on the stove to fill the upstairs bathtub. He turns on the light switch, and a fire breaks out along the entire electrical line until the entire kitchen is on fire. Uh, it, then he gets singed and burned, but he still saves the water, brings it upstairs, and as he pours it into the tub, the tub falls through the ceiling to the floor below and shatters in about a million pieces. The contractor keeps insisting the remodel will take two weeks, well into it taking months. And so he dubs the project The Money Pit. He has the opposite problem in Sleepless in Seattle. In that film, he's the contractor, and he's a good one. His client is constantly changing her mind about the remodel. And then in arguably his greatest acting performance as Ray Peterson in The Burbs, he ends up blowing up his neighbor's house. How many of you have seen The Burbs? Raise your hand. All right. Uh, good for you. The, uh, the Burbs has nothing to do whatever with the study, but I couldn't help myself because it's one of my favorite movies, which I don't know what that says about me. But anyway, most of you who are in Christ know that individual believers and believers gathered together are compared to a building project. Regarding our individual bodies, we read in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And then regarding us as a corporate body gathered together, we read in Ephesians 2.22, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul considered himself and other first century apostles and prophets as subcontractors. He said in Ephesians 2.20, We have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
And he said in 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Jesus is most definitely the contractor. He promises to finish the work he has begun in you personally, and that work is none other than conforming you into his image, and he promises to present the church to his Father in heaven without spot or blemish. Now, in our text, God's people were returning to build his temple on earth. It was a massive building project requiring stone and mortar and timber. But the first thing we encounter isn't a list of the building supplies. It's a list of the returnees, a list of the people, a list of God's people. Sure, they were returning to rebuild, but the real building project was them. With that in mind, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when Jesus is building, you're grateful to serve. And number two, when Jesus is building, you're glad to sacrifice. Let's take a look at our gratefulness in serving in the first 67 verses. Now, let me alleviate your fears. Uh, I'm not going to read most of the names in these 70 verses. You can relax. We see ourselves in the text if we look not at the individuals, but at the groupings of these individuals because they come to us in very specific groups. Let me quickly catch us up if you weren't here last week or if you were and you were playing Words with Friends. 70 years of Jewish exile in Babylon were ended. King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree allowing Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, their city, and its walls. Chapter two is the list of those who went in the first of three separate returns. And so in verse one, now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. The first wave of returnees, they were pioneers facing a daunting task. Pioneering a work for the Lord can be difficult. Let me amend that. It will be difficult. Many of you were with us meeting at the YMCA for 18 years. How many of you are YMCA alumni? God bless you. You talk about difficult. It wasn't easy. You had to really, really, really want to come to Calvary Chapel to go to church at the YMCA. When we first came here and suggested that we meet at the Y, that was crazy talk to the other churches in town. Nobody else was meeting in anything other than a church building. And then we had to set up and tear down each week. And, and although we were great tenants, we had a stormy relationship with the Y, uh, especially at first. They accused us of all kinds of things. And then if you could get through all of that and actually come to church, you had to sit on those really hard metal chairs. And uh, your kids were in locker rooms and, you know, saunas and <laughs> racquetball courts and stuff. It was insane. I don't know if I would have went to church there if I didn't have to, but I did. And uh, so, you, you, but listen, we're thankful for this facility, obviously, and it's a great blessing. Uh, but you, if you were one of the YMCA alumni, especially a pioneer of that work and serving there, uh, you should be grateful that God counted you worthy to be involved in that work. And now that we're here, a lot of you have nostalgia about that. I was just, one of the brothers brought that up this morning before he knew anything about the study. He said, yeah, you know, sometimes at the Y, I think it increased our fellowship and it did some things. I said, yeah, but I sure do like the heat and air conditioning. But anyway, <laughs> man, summers, summers were miserable there. I just, I have a million stories. One of these days I'll be senile and I'll tell you them. 
Verse two, those who came with Zerubbabel were Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah, which is why I'm not gonna read most of the names. These men were the leaders of the return. The Nehemiah in this verse is not the Nehemiah whose book we will read later. That was just a common name. Uh, neither is Mordecai, the uncle of Esther in the book of Esther. Again, just another guy with the same name. Zerubbabel would be the most prominent of these men. The temple they built is commonly translated or called by historians rather Zerubbabel's temple. I shouldn't speak for him, of course, but I don't think he would have liked it. Uh, I, I don't think any of us should like it if a spiritual building or a chair or a pew or something is named in our honor. Now, out in the world, if you want to get trophies and have your name on a building, you know, the Pensiero building or whatever, that's, that's fine. I don't care about that. But in the church, let's not seek recognition. The only recognition you seek is that from the Lord who uh, encourages you in your service and ultimately when you see him, you want him to, see, uh, to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so uh, human recognition in the church, we don't need it, we shouldn't want it. If you do, pray about that and get rid of that attitude. From the end of verse two through verse 35, see how I skipped over all that, just like that. We get the list of the number of the men of the people of Israel. Through verse 20, those listed could prove their ancestry, from verses 21 through 35, those listed could prove a claim to property or residence in a city. All these could claim and prove to be Israelites. Now from that, we can ask of ourselves, can I claim, can I prove that I am in Christ and therefore a citizen of heaven? Now we receive Christ and as we do, we receive the Holy Spirit. And so I would suggest to you that the proof is a changed and empowered life on account of being the temple of the Holy Spirit. If God indwells me by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then I should have a very, very different perspective on life and living, and I should meet the challenges of life and living very differently than I would have as a non-believer. I should be able to look at my life and say, I am really an entirely different person than I was before I knew Jesus Christ. Uh, when things happen out in the workplace, I don't react the way that I used to react. Or if I do, I recognize that that's not what the Lord would have for me. When I suffer, I suffer differently than people in the world. I have a sense of endurance and joy about it. No matter how difficult it is, the Holy Spirit is allowing me uh, to rejoice in it, as it were, so that others can be ministered to and say, how in the world are you able to go through this with peace and joy? Well, it's the Lord and those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, not to, we're not putting a trip on anybody, but obviously if you're a Christian, you think, yeah, my, my life has changed. It's different. I still live in a body of flesh. I still sin. I, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do, but I recognize that there's a struggle that I didn't recognize before I was a Christian. Then it was just whatever I wanted to do. Now it's what would please the Lord. Now the next grouping of persons are priests in verses 36 through 39. In Israel, only Levites that were the direct descendants of Aaron, Israel's first high priest, could serve as priests. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The remaining Levites are listed as a group in verse 40. The Levites who weren't from Aaron assisted the priests in their work. 
Two other temple servants are quickly listed in verses 41 and 42, singers and sons of the gatekeepers. And then the Nephanim are listed as a group in verses 43 and uh, through 54, excuse me. These were all a, a class of temple servants who were descended from King David's appointees, uh, men that he appointed to help the Levites. And so the priests, then the Levites helped the priests, and the Nephanim helped the Levites. Lots of temple servants with various callings and giftings, and so we can see ourselves in that as well because in the church of Jesus Christ, in our temple on the earth, there are lots of different callings and lots of different giftings. In verses 55 through 58, you're introduced to the sons of Solomon's servants. Now, Solomon reigned over a united Israel about four centuries before the events we're reading here. How these sons of his servants remained distinct is unknown, but they were deliberately raised up from generation to generation as servants to the king. This speaks to us about the need to always be raising up the next generation of servants and leaders within the church. And a lot of churches uh, are lax in doing this. Uh, for various different reasons, but uh, one of them is because when you're raising up younger men to do ministry, uh, you're taking a risk that they're not going to, you know, you're wondering what they're going to say and how they're going to do it. And it's not the way that you've done it before. And quite honestly, Christians, we fall into ruts. We like, you know, we, we, you do this, this is the way we do it, this is the way we've always done it. And then when you introduce some new element, some younger element, it's like you become some old fogey. And stuff, and so what happens quite often is the young people coming up underneath us, they leave and they don't come back. They go away to college and then they find another church or something like that. Uh, and so we've done a pretty good job, I think, of raising up younger guys. I think our younger guys are the best younger guys anywhere. Uh, and they're totally capable, wonderful, spirit-filled men. And then I realized that it's getting to the point where our younger guys aren't so young anymore. And they need to be raising up their own younger guys, which they are doing. And so I guess I'm giving you a kind of a report that our church is healthy in this area as it should be. Verse 59, and these were the ones who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Immer. But they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Now I'm always telling you, Good names for kids are in here. Uh, but this one I like for a dog, Nakoda. That would be a great name for your next. So if you have a puppy at home, uh, or maybe right now somebody's dropping off a puppy in your backyard, you know, it's a dump job. <laughs> Nakoda. Not that I would do anything like that ever, but anyway. Some Jews had no documentation proving any ancestry or any claim to property. Nevertheless, they came along, wanting to be a part of what God was doing. No matter their status in the community, they wanted to be with God and among his people. God was going to be doing a work in Jerusalem. And even though these people had no claim to land or no one knew their genealogy, both of which were super important, they said, hey, forget it. We're leaving Babylon. We want to be where God is really doing a work, and that is over here now. God is always moving in our gatherings, even if... We don't see a visible manifestation. I think churches go wrong sometimes because we're looking for something visible to happen. Not to pick on Pentecostals, but uh, they uh, typically are looking for movement, 
some kind of physical movement, some kind of speaking in tongues, some kind of prophesying, people falling down, and then people will go and they say, God was really moving in our service today. And, um, you know, I've, I remember one really sweet older woman at the, she came one time to the YMCA and uh, she came up after service. She says, that was a wonderful message, but there was no moving of the spirit. She started dancing around, you know, and stuff. I said, ma'am, you're going to hurt yourself. You're like 89 years old, you know. Our ushers are not going to catch you when you fall backwards. They, they won't know what to do. They'll say, oh, that woman fainted. And uh, now she has a concussion. But anyway, uh, you know, but God is always moving because his word is what? It's alive and it's powerful. And so anytime God's word is read aloud or you're sitting there, he's moving. But he may be moving in a still small voice. Uh, we don't need to be dancing. And a lot of times people say, well, you're so critical. I said, well, yes, I am. But um, imagine you've seen some Pentecostal preaching, right? Hankies and yelling and moving around. Just try and imagine Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount like that. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Amen. Can I get an amen? Yeah, none of that happened. All right, let's move on. The next group is in verses 61 through 63, bam. And of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. These guys claimed to be priests, and they might have been, but they could not prove their ancestry, so they could not serve. I, I talked earlier about being sure you're a believer. We could go a step further and ask if you're called by God to serve in a certain capacity. Waiting to confirm God's gifting isn't always a bad thing. It seems like everybody wants to teach the Bible all the time, even though in the New Testament we read, be not many teachers. I'll tell you, teaching the Bible is terrifying. Because you have to be right all the time. Otherwise, people come and say, oh, oh, wait a minute. You mispronounced Barzillai. It should have been Barzillai. And so, oh, okay, I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, it's terrifying. And it should be terrifying because it's important. But everybody wants to teach. Uh, Charles Swindoll tells a story about when he was at seminary about a kid who wanted to be a Bible teacher. And everybody was pretty sure he didn't have the gift of teaching. And so finally, his, he went up to his professor and they got into a little bit of a argument back and forth and he said I have the gift of teaching and his professor said well then no one has the gift of listening to you <laughs> so if you're not gifted in one area you are gifted in another area it doesn't it, why waste your time just do what God has gifted you to do and a lot of times you can figure that out in the body of Christ as you're among people and if you're if you're open to really honest critique uh, somebody saying hey you just don't have that gift but I do see you doing this and if you not get your hackles up, then you can be happy serving the Lord. Verse 63, the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. The famous Urim and Thummim, they were stones that were on the high priest's breastplate. And when they were consulted, they somehow revealed the will of God. The Jewish Talmud describes how questions were put to the breastplate and the stones would light up to spell out the answer. They made that noise too. We really, though, aren't sure how they communicated. We're just told, in, we're not told in scripture. I, I'd like to know. 
uh, but were not. But they did give God's will. Now, these stones, they were lost to history while the Jews were in exile. The returnees were hoping they would be found or returned so that they might be consulted. They never were. They're still lost. read an article a few months ago about uh, some archaeologists thinking they found them. But like most of those articles, it turned out not to be true. Aren't you grateful that you can consult with God anytime, anywhere? You don't have to find a priest who has stones in his breastplate and wonder how they decipher, but that the Lord speaks to you through the still small voice of his spirit, through his word, through other Christians, uh, in dreams and in visions if necessary, however he wants to bring you his word and his will. Next, we see slaves and more singers. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. A slave in Israel was someone who had become indebted in some way and had voluntarily sold themselves into servitude for a period not to exceed seven years in order to repay their debt. Some of them at the end of that seven years wanted to remain in that household because they were better off there than they were on their own. They would be taken to the doorpost of the house where their ear was pierced and an earring would be put in it to identify them as permanent bond servants to that household. We, of course, are called the bond servants of Jesus. He has set us free from sin and death. The only reasonable reaction to our freedom is to want to serve him as his bond servants for the rest of our lives. They had 200 men and women singers. Now, these seem to be in addition to the singers who would serve in the temple. It's been suggested that they were a kind of choir that sang for the returnees along their arduous journey, a kind of USO for Israel. Whatever they were, it tells us that camp life during this four-month, 900-mile journey was pretty joyous. There was a lot of singing and partying and having a good time. It reminds us to celebrate the joy of our salvation along our pilgrim journey home. You know, it's an old Baptist adage that uh, some Christians look like they were baptized in lemon juice. Somebody told me about a, a, a gal that had such a sour face that somebody went up to her one time and said, you know, if you ate a pickle, the pickle would make a sour face. But, you know, we, we can have joy as Christians. We can rejoice. We can, we can have fun. Uh, you know, a lot of times, as, you know, uh, online. If you go online... Everything, almost everything that Christians write and talk about is critical. They want to criticize everybody, everything, all the time. You're doing, you're, you are doing everything wrong as a Christian right now. You don't know it, but if you read enough blogs, you'll find out that you are blowing it big time in any area of your life. And, and it's just terrible. It's crazy. A very little encouraging, uplifting, positive stuff about how much the Lord loves you and, and how many chances he gives you and all of those kinds of things. And so just, you know, I kind of, I kinda think Christians like to feel bad about themselves because we think if I feel bad, that means I'm actually gonna do better and, and just, you know, ignore some of that stuff and, and just read the Bible, how's that? And then if you feel bad, then it's the Lord ministering to you and he'll restore you. The list ends with a nod to their animals. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. These all beasts of burden provided to lighten the labor of the returnees. Jesus described our relationship with him as if we were oxen yoked together. He said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. 
we can be grateful for such a competent, conquering yoke fellow to bear our burdens. Mick Jagger will never be your beast of burden, he said, but Jesus encourages you to cast all your cares upon him. That's so hard to do. I haven't figured that out yet. I love keeping my cares to myself. These are my cares. I like looking at them, dwelling on them, wondering how they're all gonna, sometimes they sneak out and they get a little ways and then I grab them back because I don't want the Lord to carry them then I wouldn't have anything to do. Since in the Gospel of John, Jesus called himself our friend, we might say that Jesus is our bestie of burden. You see what I did there? Yeah. What I did was make a stupid joke. But anyway, (laughs) of course, the greatest yoke Jesus bore was the cross he carried to Calvary for us. He bore your sin. He bore your shame on his shoulders, literally. Our burden is indeed... Uh, It is indeed light. Our burden is salvation in him, and he bore it all. Now, when it comes to the ongoing spiritual building projects that are our lives in the church, any change of plans, any delay, any miscommunication, it cannot be the fault of the contractor or of any of his first century subcontractors. If there is a problem, it is us. We tend to blame the Lord, especially when things aren't going our way, but it can't be his fault. In everything, because it's Jesus who's building, we can be grateful and always give thanks. We're also glad to sacrifice in the remaining verses. That's what we're going to take a look at. It's been called the Sunday morning stick-up, the manipulative pressure tactics pastors and churches use to get your money. Have you ever been in a service like that? Second offerings, third offerings, pressure tactics for you to donate to whatever project. That's not really giving, is it? Your giving, the Bible says, ought to be willing and regular and sacrificial and joyful. And if it's coerced, it's not really giving. Uh, The money is there, but it's from a wrong heart and gotten with a wrong method. No believer should be treated that way, but we must also acknowledge that ministry requires money. How much on average do Americans give to their church each year? In 2017, it was estimated at $818. That's annually comes out to $15.75 per week. Not going to guilt you by pointing out that you probably spend more than that at Starbucks each week. Not going to guilt you about that at all. No, I really am not. I am going to ask, though, first, does anybody here work for Starbucks or at Starbucks? Anybody? Did I see any hands? No hands? Okay, good. I'm going to guilt you for buying terrible coffee. <laughs> Go to a real coffee shop. Go to 111 or Java Hut or one of those places where they care about coffee. Better yet, learn how to make your own coffee at home. I will help you. <laughs> There's nothing that Starbucks makes that you can't make at home for less money. And you, th- and you think, well, it takes so much time to make coffee at home. Really, I've driven by the Starbucks on 12th Avenue and counted 25 cars in line. And I'm thinking, yeah, that doesn't take any time at all, does it? <laughs> Starbucks is a necessary evil when you're traveling. I give myself a pass when I'm traveling. (laughs) And I think bad coffee is better than no coffee, even though I do have several portable ways of making coffee in the car. But uh, anyway, I'll help you. I really will. Though the work of building for God is essentially spiritual, it always requires physical resources. 
I do wanna say this as well before we go on. If you give to Calvary Hanford any amount, thank you. It's appreciated more than you know. Now, the building project Zerubbabel and the other 42,359 exiles were starting would require finances. And one way God provided was through the sacrificial giving of his own people. Verse 68, some of the heads of the father's houses when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Stop there for a minute. What they came to in Jerusalem was a ruin, but it was to them the house of the Lord. It still existed in their hearts and their minds. They saw its potential to be rebuilt. It's one thing for you to give to a specific physical project, a new building, a remodel, or some such thing. Most of your giving, though, is always going to be intangible. Your giving ends up building the lives of others as folks get saved, and then they are taught the word, and then they grow in the Lord. Each person is going to be a part of your joy and your crown when Jesus says, well done. Verse 68, some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the houses of the Lord, house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. If churches had an exit poll, one great question would be, did you give freely? We ought to be able to answer yes, both because we were not coerced into giving and because we did give. Verse 69, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. It's hard to be exact, but scholars put the monetary value between a quarter million and $1.3 million. According to their ability is one word in the original. It's a hard word to translate. One version captures what I think is meant saying, they gave all they could. They were generous, they looked at their budget, and they gave as much as they could, not as little as they wanted. Any decent financial advisor would have told them it was uncertain times. They should save as much as they could. They saw the temple, though, as a worthy spiritual investment, and they gave all they could. So here's another good grace-filled principle for your giving to the ongoing building project. Give freely and give all you can. Verse 70, so the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. The priests and other temple servants were scattered throughout Judah, so then when not serving the temple on their rotation, they could be available to serve people in their other capacities. Everyone was in place to build, but remember the Lord was also building them. Whatever they might build outwardly, Jesus would exceed in building them inwardly as they remained yielded to him. Now, I mentioned last week that several Old Testament books record aspects of this return, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Some like to pronounce it Malachi and say it's in Italian, but that's not true. Malachi records what Jesus was building. In chapter three, he says this, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And so the Lord was building into the lives of those who were seeking him during this project. The greatest project is always the person, not the, not the wood and stucco around it. And so when we talk about building projects, there are things to build, sure, so that we can meet together, but you are God's building project. The exiles came back to ruins, 
but they saw its future in the Lord. You and I spiritually, we're not much to look at. Jesus not only sees our future, he's promised to get us there. Not practically perfect, but actually perfect in every way. Here's a spoiler alert. The money pit ends with a wedding in front of a totally restored house. Our current story will end and our future one begin with us at a wedding in heaven leading to a restored creation. Jesus compared himself to a bridegroom and us as his bride. That's how much he loves us and that's how much he is building into our lives. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.